All right. So, Al Grijino is a freelance journalist uh, based in Vancouver. His byline is on media posts such as the Washington Post, East Asia Forum, Policy Center, Toronto, Toronto Star, New Canadian Media, and The Diplomat. Um, Alec, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, I guess we can start off by just having you explain how things have been committing to something like journalism, how your journey has been, especially coming from the Philippines all the way to Vancouver. Thanks for having me, Alec and Lewis. Um, yeah, okay, that's a big question to start with. Uh, I don't know. Um, so I guess I've been doing journalism for about, I mean, I guess if you count high school, I've been doing journalism for like maybe eight or nine years now. Um, and it's been, it's been a lot of fun, I guess I'd say, you know, like one of the main reasons I started off wanting to do something like journalism is because I thought it was a really great way to one, um, exercise like a particular skill that I think would be really useful, um, both in my understanding of like the world around me and also like major issues, you know, because journalism requires a lot of like in-depth research and being able to communicate with people and share their stories. And two, um, especially because um, I left the Philippines for university, uh, I want to say it's been five, more than five years now. Um, getting into journalism allowed me to really maintain my roots in a sense, both in, you know, really getting to connect with the Filipino community here in Canada and understand its issues, and also to really understand what's going on back, in home, back at home in a really in-depth kind of way, you know. Because um, if I want to be able to report on something that's going on or write about it in an op-ed, um, I need to have a certain level of like expertise to be able to understand it so that other people would think that it's worth publishing, you know? Um, sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, when was the second part of your question? My journey, right? Something like that. Yeah, <laughs> how, how's, how's it just been just going through the, you know, committing to something like journalism, especially coming from the Philippines obviously we're in international school setting but then all the way going to somewhere like Vancouver and pursuing something like journalism there compared to how it was when you were in school in the Philippines yeah sure well it's, I guess the best way to describe it is that is that it's been a bit of a up and down you know um like anyone I suppose who graduates um the, the prospect of finding a career long-term has been really important to me, you know, because I want to have some sort of stability afterwards. But the main issue that I've seen with journalism since I've really started pushing for it is just how, um, how freelance and contract work kind of dominates most of it and how much that limits the kinds of um, gains you're able to make while under, well, in the industry. And obviously gains and making money is not the end goal for journalism, because if that was my end goal, I'd be doing something else. But um, <laughs> yeah, for sure. But um, it's kind of, it is a major limitation as someone who wants to immigrate to a country long term. Um, one of the reasons why um, I don't do journalism full time right now, even though I really enjoy it, and I love doing research and work on stories, is um, the immigration regulations in Canada um, require me to be in a full-time job for sure. a continuous amount of time if I want to stay here long-term and live here. And there's not a lot of full-time jobs that are looking for journalists who just graduated out of high school. So it's kind of a struggle. Like one of the things I've been struggling with since I've graduated is do I try to pursue 
this as a career more um, in depth and risk potentially not being able to get enough work experience to stay? Or do I go into another field and maybe come back into it later, but then kind of lose that um, spark or lose kind of the motivation? Sure. Yeah. And then I guess the other issue with being a journalist that, you know, someone who's recently immigrated is um, I think a lot of good journalism comes from being locally connected and well integrated into the community. And mm. as a recent immigrant, those kinds of things take a lot of time to build. And sure. yeah. it's not exactly something that you can just kind of parachute your way into and start reporting on. At least like you could do that, but it'd be really hard to do actual reporting with a certain amount of nuance and understanding of like the context around you. So that's something that takes me a lot of time to kind of develop. And, you know, I did that a little bit for Montreal and I just moved to Vancouver and I'm reestablishing those connections so that I'm more comfortable in telling stories. Um, but I still don't regret it. I still have a lot of fun with it, you know. Um, even though like journalism is predominantly, um, at least in Canada, it's predominantly like native-born people and it's predominantly white white men. Like it's not something that um, really scares me because I do think like, especially as someone who comes from a, a, a large community here in Canada, it's uh, it's an important way to get their voices out there and really have conversations and talk about our issues in a broader conversation that otherwise really didn't really be discussed about, which is what I try to co cover, <clears throat> which is what I try to cover in my stories. Awesome. Um, when you mentioned that you can't pursue journalism on a full-time basis because you require a full-time employment for your visa uh, requirement, right? Um, is that because there really is no sort of independent news outlet looking for journalists? Um, because, so is that the issue or is it just that like the type of journalism that you do isn't present in um, what I would imagine to be, to be more independent news sources? Because like, if I remember correctly, uh, there's a pretty high profile now podcaster, former um, reporter, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure you know him, Tim Pool, right? So that guy just sort of started right out uh, with Vice, with basically no background at all. Um, so I'd be, I'd, be, I'd be interested to just hear what the issue there is, really. I mean, I suppose, hmm, I suppose it's a little bit of both. Um, okay. I think there's there's definitely some ground where, you know, they're looking for people who work full-time. Um, but first, like, Canada doesn't really have a really large news environment. Like there's only a handful of publications um, that can really hire and a lot of newsrooms are getting shuttered and they're kind of decreasing in size over time. You know, I've applied for a few like internships and some major publications and every time I ask them, oh, what's the long-term like trajectory for someone who does internship like this, you know? And they usually say, well, actually, I'm, we're not really gonna hire any of the interns because we don't really have any space. And it was really funny because one of those interviews I was talking, I, I jumped in um, to the Zoom call like a minute early and I was at least listening to the people that were going to interview me and they were like yeah actually uh, next month I'm going to leave I'm going to join rival newspaper because I think they have way better pay and they'll be way more flexible in the stories they tell and then I'm here and inter interviewing for a job there and I'm like what am I doing here <laughs> um, but the other part of it I think and I don't know what Pool's experience is is a lot of journalism and this is true for a number of careers is um, 
if you have a larger war chest to start, then you have a lot of flexibility to take sure. risks and really work on something over time, you know? Um, like, if you're a freelance journalist and you're hoping to use your journalism to make your ends meet, um, you really need to be writing, like, constantly, you know, multiple stories mm -hmm. over the course of a few days, you know, maybe, like, for me, based on how much I get paid for a freelance story, like, I'd probably need to make, like, three stories a week to be able to pay for rent and everything else there. And sure. that's quite difficult. And the main issue with these immigration regulations are, is um, like, it's not necessarily like work in of, of itself, because I can find work in journalism, but it needs to be continuous and full-time, you know? So mm. um, there are a lot of eight month contracts or six month contracts for journalism, for people to do some stories for like a certain period of time. But if I don't hold a job for a year during my current work permit, um, and it has to be a single job over the course of one year, um, then I'm not eligible to reapply for another permit in the future, and then I can't leave. So that's always kind of in the back of my mind. And, right. and stuff that I cover is a bit more niche in that I like to do either immigration or labor. And obviously, like, both are really large, sub, like, large topics. Mm. But um, immigration, I suppose, in particular, is not a field that um local natives like are particularly interested in unless it's more nativist and there's a lot of like stuff that are like fear-mongering in a sense like if i talk about immigrant issues um they're important but because they're not really an electoral base that can vote politicians don't deeply care about that group sure um, yeah, yeah. local natives don't really like they care about it to the extent of like we don't want to be doing bad things to other people but um they're not really thinking that critically or that deeply about it so it kind of just gets mm -hmm pushed to the wayside to like other major issues and in all honesty I guess COVID has like kind of taken over all news cycles so that's like 90% of a lot of reporting that I see and sometimes like reporting ends up like having to talk about it which makes sense because it's you know it's a global pandemic but um it's kind of tough because some stories like they're important and they don't they've existed before COVID and they're they're tougher yeah. because of it but then no one wants to hear about it because the COVID angle is what everyone wants to focus on mm. Yeah, I can imagine that's really like tough right now because just from from someone who doesn't do any journalism and doesn't like really pay much attention to, to that sphere, I suppose. Um, what I have noticed is that for the past like two years here in Germany, there's been like three things that the news has like talked about. And number one, obviously, it's been COVID. Uh, number two, more recently, were our elections, and before that, it was kind of like sprinkled in between here and there's like climate change that's pretty much it but like that's the only thing that we get to hear about <laughs> yeah, it's tough because there's just there's a lot of stories to report on but our attention spans as people are just so much smaller and true yeah. yeah part of my struggle with journalism as much as i like it is um there's definitely like a pressure to kind of cater your stories to fit into the fact that people have short attention spans so you can't talk too much about a particular issue in depth because people are gonna not be interested or you have to like follow what current trends are because you know those are what everyone wants to talk about even if you think another issue is more important and that's fair obviously you For know sure. like in any yeah. position you want to cater to the audience but with uh, journalism being so accessible and widely available online um you compete with a lot of like unsavory kind of publications you know things that are covering things that you think you know maybe they're potentially exaggerating or there's misinformation that's going on and that's quite common I feel like now in journalism and it's 
you know, something that kind of discourages me from the industry as a whole. But I'll keep mm -hmm. pushing, I guess. I'm glad that you bring that up because that was going to be like the next thing I wanted to ask is like, what is your take on, um, I guess, I, I suppose that there is no correct way to say this, but like the sort of prevalence of political correctness and what I generally describe as like wokeism in what appears to me um, to be really prevalent in, in a lot of mainstream media, if not in all mainstream media, and how that affects the actual foundation of what I believe like reporting in journalism should be which is just storytelling like telling about like talking about what's actually going on I'll say I think um my main gripe with journalism other than the fact that uh, misinformation is so huge is that um we don't we like we see a lot of work assume very little of audiences where we try to show them maybe a, a gotcha moment that isn't really a gotcha moment to try to build a narrative around the stuff that we think people should be focusing on. Um, where I think journalism really should be, we give information to people who read and they can make conclusions on their own, you know? And um, yeah. I try not to do that in my own work, but I do see a lot of, even in mainstream media, even in the stuff that I read where they're trying to pull you towards a certain direction so that when you talk about an issue, you think about an issue, um, you're thinking in the way that they do, which I think is a bit disingenuous when you're trying to cover a story because it's very easy to pick and choose which facts you want to share in an article as a journalist because you're mm. the person who has a lot of the keys to, you know, keys, the keys to all these, like all this different info. And mm. you get to make an assessment for yourself what is important to share. But you get to omit things that don't matter. And I think that's a very, it, it, um, I think people who read the news are very keen and are able to pick up on that. And that's where a lot of the distrust in journalism comes from. You know, when you read an article at any major news, news, newspaper, um, you can get a sense of like, well, there's definitely more to this story or you're describing it in a way or you're cherry picking a quote so that it yeah. looks a certain way. And I think that's really frustrating. And it's one of the things that like, you know, as a, as someone who's wants you know wants to build career in journalism, something I'm trying to avoid. Um, but as you can tell, it's kind of rampant. It's kind of hard to stop. And I don't sure. think it's um, I don't think it goes into any a single ideological bent. But mm -hmm. I think it's just there's so much opportunity to publish stories online now that anyone can kind of take this and run with it in any direction that they mm -hmm. want. So it's it's definitely a challenge. Sure. Does it, I mean, does it also kind of affect you as if, especially if you're writing on a story and maybe your editor or the news outlet that you're writing for, they kind of want you to take a stance on it or a particular stance on it? Does that ever happen? Um, I've been kind of fortunate and I've had a lot of, um, all my editors have been generally supportive of the stuff that I want to do. Um, because, because I'm freelance, a lot of the work that I get to do are under my um, own, um, they're, they're, they're decisions that I make. I reach out to an editor and I say, this is a story I wanna cover. I think it's important because of this. And if you want to publish, please let me know so that I know that this is where this story has a hope. And usually um, they'll push me in certain direction either to, to provide some more context or more information um, rather than you know like to get more people to read a story a certain way. Um, mm -hmm. Usually my stories get hung up because 
um, I write a lot about sensitive um, topics with sensitive populations. So I can't use um, I can't use direct quotes from them and reveal their full name. So I either have to corroborate their information by you know bringing my editor together with them or use facts from you know like academics or other publications to show that this narrative that I'm building is not something that I'm just making up based on a conversation I have with someone. But I've been very fortunate, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Awesome. I mean, I suppose I suppose every story that you read that's written by journalists is going to have some kind of perspective on it, right? Because like otherwise it's 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 first of all, it's uninteresting to read. And second of all, it's impossible to tell a story without putting your own twists on it, I guess. Um, have you ever thought, and like, again, so as someone who has never really put paid much attention to this sort of sphere, have you ever given much thought to the idea of maybe taking your journalism and your stories and what you feel is important and just sort of doing this whole thing like independently on the side of your freelance work and your full-time job with something like a YouTube channel or something else like that? Because in my opinion, I think that's where a lot of, a lot of people are going to now just well obviously the, there's, there's a lot of crap on youtube right so you have these people who like who will pretend to like know stuff about something and really they're just talking out their ass right but uh, i can imagine for someone like you to, just to get your stuff out there you know yeah for sure and i it's something i have definitely played with and considered because i do think it's such a great thing like it's, it's a double-edged sword it's a great thing sure. that you know we're able to get people to share their opinions and put stories online um, in different avenues so that it's accessible to everyone. And it's also not a great thing because anyone can say anything and, you know, the amount of people fact-checking information out there is quite limited. Me personally, sure. I've always, um, <laughs> if you talk to anyone I know here, I've talked about, oh, I should make a YouTube channel for like maybe a year or two now. And every Dude, time I try, <laughs> but every time, every time I try, um, my, my main struggle, you know, like I have a camera, I have a microphone, I can talk and I can use my camera, but I want to be able to create content using, you know, other kinds of visuals. So I want to be able to like either potentially like animate or use photos that are really high quality, but then um, there's not a lot of great photos that you can use online or videos that are free. And I have no animation skills to speak of. So I've, I've like, I've oscillated back and forth between like trying out like something like Skillshare or whatever LinkedIn mm. learning thing they use to learn animation. And then after like five minutes, I end up giving up like every single <laughs> It's like a, it's like this, it's clockwork because I do it constantly. I'll be like, okay, this is the month I'm going to start learning. And I, yeah. I walk in, I don't, I, you know, I pirate all the Adobe stuff I need to pirate to make videos. <laughs> and then I sit there and I'm just like, I have no clue what I'm doing, you know, like I'm, I'm trying to draw, but then I'm using a trackpad. It's not going to happen. Um, so yeah, like I will. Uh, Man, I, here's, I will <laughs> here's my recommendation for you. Download OBS studio, hook up mm -hmm. like a nice camera view and, and like set it up so that like your camera view is like always kind of in like the top frame and just yeah. get like screenshots or like whatever, just like take your own pictures, do something. But cause like, if you, if you already thought about this, I would say just do it. I mean, look, me and Alex started this podcast and I remember that we had, like before we, we ever started, right? We had this like technical meeting on Zoom just to figure out all the like, like techie logistics side of how do we record? How do we get stuff like online? It took us like 10 minutes to figure this out. And so mm. we just went for it. So just go for it, dude, come on. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it's also good to have like someone you can like rip 
like riff with and work with to like figure these things out absolutely you know yeah. uh, I think I get in my head a lot because um I'll it's the same thing when I write stories like I'll sometimes I'll get everything done before the crucial thing kind of you know gets figured out you know I'll write a whole mm. story about something before I realize like who will be interested in publishing it so mm. and I ended up writing like you know 1200 words and I realized there's no publication that really fits this tone of voice or really fits the angle that I'm trying to go for it so I'm just trying to send it out and hope it sticks and then there are definitely times where I spend like a couple of days writing a story and nothing comes of it because I don't know who's going to publish it so yeah uh, this is the kind of person I am is sometimes I get really excited about a, uh, a thing but I don't think about the bits and details but I will take your advice and do that yeah. at some point and hopefully you'll be able to see that one day um, I hope I'm not, I'm not saying that and then it's just jinxing it and I never do it but we'll see yeah in terms of the like Adobe software stuff like the design stuff because uh, I doubted it because I was teach myself how to code and design websites so I had to use that stuff as well you know whether it's pirate or you know you find an alternative substitute which I did because you know I hate the Adobe subscription thing yeah. I, I was able to find like a one-off payment thing and alter alternate software man yeah, just just dabble in it like don't have a sort of frame or goal in mind to sort of play around uh, if you do enjoy it then keep going if you don't then don't bother because if you're not going to enjoy it now then you're not going to enjoy it along the line That's in the true. future yeah i think it just i, I want to develop these skills you know not just for my own ability to like present um the stuff that i'm covering but i also just think they're useful skills and being yeah. able to communicate with people you know like mm -hmm. finding new ways to get information out there is always useful as a journalist because as you know also um, you know, some people prefer to get the information in through other mediums, you know, they don't necessarily, not that they don't want to read um, an article, but they just have a preference to, you know, listening to someone talk over a course of a podcast, or they mm -hmm. like the, they like using a YouTube video to really understand like where they're coming from, which is totally fair. But some, yeah. like for me, I'm kind of boxed myself into like a certain direction in journalism mm -hmm. that I need to like push myself out in that direction I have like little I've like I've dabbled in those areas but I'm definitely not someone who has all the technical expertise to do that on a regular basis that's something I'm just gonna have to gradually build over time yeah and just go for it like honestly uh the, the guy that I mentioned Tim Poole nowadays he, I think he just does his like own podcast there are two frames in like like in the video side of things he has the camera shot of himself and second is like just his like screen where he just scrolls down on like all the Twitter tweets that he like rants about. So like, <laughs> just just keep it simple. Like it's fine. Yeah. No. I will. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to like actually watch other people and how they present stuff and actually put myself out there. I think that's also because I I'm a, I'm a I'm a classic kind of person who likes to overthink. And mm. when you're on a live not a live forum, but if you're like recording yourself on video and just having like a conversation like this um it i like to be able to pull out information and like write and you know give people links and give people information and i think having a medium where you're doing that is kind of a bit of more of a challenge because like you're just kind of talking through like a stream of consciousness sure. and i kind of i'm just i guess i'm, I'm a bit like self-conscious about that that's something mm -hmm. also but mm -hmm. i think it goes to your point of like you just have to keep doing it because then you get yeah. to build comfort, you know, like my first few things don't have to be major hits. They just have to be oh. things where I'm comfortable and get better at doing something. So, sure. 
So as a freelance journalist over in Vancouver, you do mostly stories about um, the Filipino community, uh, whether it's it pertains to both the Philippines and Canada or whether it's just the Philippines in general. How's mm -hmm. ha how has that been? Because uh, you mentioned when we were having an initial call before that you are part of the reason why you chose to do immigration stuff or, you know, uh, social political stuff concerning Filipino culture and society is that kind of keeps you connected to the community. So how's that been for you, especially being far away from home? I'd say it's a pretty eye-opening experience because one of the, you know, when I moved from the Philippines to Canada um, back in 2016, one of the first things I wanted to do was, you know, get myself familiar with what the Filipino community is like in Montreal. And one of the key things I think that I realized very early on was that my migration experience as an international student who came from an international school in the Philippines who has their parents paying for their tuition um, versus someone who moved to Canada because they're taking on caregiving or they're working in a factory and food processing or something like that. Um, our experiences are not the same. Our thought process, our issues regarding, you know, what's going on in the Philippines is not the same. Why we left to move to a country like Canada is not the same. And uh, it was kind of a slap in the face where, you know, the kind of privileges, the kind of advantages that I have in my life were kind of bare put forward and journalism kind of allows me to be an advocate of some sort I guess not really advocacy in a you know that kind of sense but in the sense of like you know their their stories are you know uh, their stories are incredibly important and they're also Filipino people just like me but they're going through kinds of like different things and I want to be able to support them through it and why like I feel like journalism is a good outlet for that is that I think um, maybe it's a bit idealistic, but a lot of the issues that they go through as a, as a Filipino community, because a lot of people in the, from the Philippines here in Canada usually work in something like healthcare or they work um, in, you know, like blue collar jobs where they work in factories or some sort is I think people really understood how immigration regulations, how um, certain kind of dynamics of like, class and race like affect this group of people they'd be more mm -hmm. considerate for what kinds of policies or how um ways that we treat them you know and to like, treat them better i suppose is what i'm trying to say um it's it's difficult because i think despite being such a large population in canada i don't think filipino filipinos get a lot of airtime because uh because a lot of the people that are filipino are in the lower class no one really wants to talk about their issues in mainstream media, which is why I end up pushing it a lot in that direction. And I guess, and again, um, because they're, you know, mostly recent immigrants, they're not really a strong electoral group. So politicians don't really think about them that deeply. So connecting with the community in that sense, like fulfills like multiple prompts for me in that I can um, mm. advocate for them, shed light on their issues. And also, um, um, you know, it's a good, exercise in me like thinking about like when I talk about being Filipino um what does that mean to me versus like you know like it, it, it helps me really build that I um identity broadly around like being a Filipino person because I, I realized also when I was in the Philippines I never really thought about it that deeply because you know I'm in the Philippines surrounded by other Filipino people um you don't really have to think about that that strongly 
but there's also the flip side where I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing a lot of this work where I'm trying to report on stories and really get into the community. But because my background is so different, um, sometimes I feel a bit like an outsider because I don't, mm-hmm. you know, like perhaps someone who has more lived experience in those areas would be better set to um, really talk about it. And sometimes I wonder also like if advocating for them through journalism is like sufficient enough of a way to like really push forward their issues when you know I see other people who are more on the ground working with them actively communicating with them and like pushing for their rights um, in like a electoral sphere or like in socially and I'm not doing that because mostly what I'm doing is writing something out and publishing it on an article like it's hard to gauge like the impact of it so it's hard to see say if I'm doing enough but I'm also like part of the reason why I picked journalism is because you know um, I get to sit down and really work on it and really think through my opinions. Whereas um, activism, like on the ground, is personally, I find really exhausting. You know, it's a lot yeah. of work. Yeah. And it's, you have to work with a lot of different people with different perspectives and trying to push for certain issues in different kinds of ways. Um, it's a lot, it's really tough. And I don't know if I have the stamina to do it, I guess. Or maybe I should be trying harder. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, I so, think it's going great because yeah. I mean, obviously, for those who have, who are willing to take the time to read through articles, whether it's your work or someone else's, I think that's good because nowadays, obviously, people are, are have very short attention spans. They like to consume media and content in a specific way, and reading articles isn't something that is so popular now. But in terms of actually like helping out I think it's great because I was reading I I read your article on the Toronto Star about caregiving and uh, Filipino workers in Canada and how there's different logistical issues within the system in Canada that prevents overseas Filipino workers to actually become full-time nurses even though they do have university qualifications that it forces them to go into jobs that they are overqualified for, such as caregiving or, you know, other jobs like that. And, you know, I I had an idea of it, obviously, but I didn't know the extent of it, especially in some places like Canada. Yeah, I think, um, I think some of these issues, like when you really boil it down, um, are common sense policy proposals, Mm -hmm. you know, like, if you have a group of people who are overskilled and you have a shortage of labor, like in this story that I worked on, um, then you want to be able to put people who have skills working in those fields, especially when it comes to something like healthcare, which is such mm-hmm. a major issue now. But it's kind of this thing where it's an open secret with the Filipino community, because I think everyone kind of understands because so many, so many um, Filipinos leave to do jobs in healthcare and they end up working in jobs that they're overqualified for because Filipino qualifications aren't worth as much as qualifications here in Canada or anywhere else in the world. Um, It's one of those things where a lot of us have a general understanding of it. And we just don't think we, we, we either don't take the time to think about it as deeply, or it's something that like, we don't really feel the need to. It's the same thing when um, I moved here to Canada, um, a lot of a lot of my friends who are international students. One of the first thing they tell me when I say, Oh, I'm a Filipino person is, Oh, my maid's Filipino. That's so cool. She taught me some Filipino words. 
And um, <laughs> it's one of the common things I think Filipino international students deal with is you hear that and you're like, you know, that's a little odd, but it's one of those things where if people really thought about it, you know, why is it the case that there are so many and, you know, what leads them to do that? Um, those are one of the like key salient questions that I think people need to be asking because if we actually dig deeper, we could actually do something that has some positive benefit, not just to the community that is affected by it, but to, you know, sure. our broader society as a whole, you know, like if more of these mm. nurses actually got to work as nurses, for example, then maybe we wouldn't have such a large healthcare shortage where, you know, we're really struggling to make sure we have enough people who can take care of um, patients in hospital beds, you know, mm. I don't know how it is in um, where you guys are, but I think in Canada, it's same thing here, same thing here. I mean, the issue is that like, um, especially here in Germany for healthcare workers to become like a nurse here. If you, if you go through the formal training system here, you spend three and a half years training to become a nurse. And then you don't even have like a university qualification. You have this piece of paper that qualifies you to work as a nurse, but that's it. Like you can't do anything else with that um, because it's not a university course here. It's like a vocational um, uh, apprentice. Like you, you do an apprenticeship to become a nurse here which I've never understood. Like, I've always found that's kind of stupid because like, and, and, and then another problem is that like, you do this like long ass course thing where you work in the field of medicine, but you get paid like nothing. So like, uh, it, it doesn't incentivize anyone to go through that. Um, but I what I want to touch upon also is because you, you mentioned that the Filipino community has a certain set of social issues in Canada. And so I would like to know more specifically what those issues are just like two or three of them mm. um i don't know if i'm the expert i would be able to say hey these are the particular issues of the filipino community because um, we're a pretty diverse group of people like we're right i think the philippines and Can filipinos in canada are like one of the largest immigrant groups in the country generally so our issues are quite diversified in my opinion um the biggest issues that face the filipino community is the fact that um, the uh, on 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 mass that uh, we're vastly overeducated, but we're underemployed and we're underpaid for a lot of work, and mm. there's a lot of um, like you see it a lot like in the healthcare profession, obviously, because so many Filipinos move to Canada specifically to take on healthcare jobs, and they don't end up becoming you know if they have a background as a nurse, they end up working as a caregiver, um, and that's one of those components. But the other components is because we've, um, the Philippines educational system only goes up to 16 years old up until like five, five years ago, I think I'm not, I'm not, mm. don't quote me on that. I'm not entirely sure if that's correct. But um, that is, yeah. Yeah. But well, a lot of migrants moved, at least prior to that, their educational qualifications were not um, concurrent with what their background is in the Philippines because, because they graduated earlier. Um, they end up getting pushed down two years. So if you're like a third year in high school in the Philippines and you move to Canada as a third year, you end up having to do your freshman year again, which is for a lot of Filipinos, Filipino immigrants, really discouraging and disheartening. So it leads to a lot of people either dropping out early or getting really low grades and not being interested in higher education in the future because they feel like their education was undervalued to begin with. So we have this dual problem where a lot of people are overqualified because they're overeducated. And a lot of people who... Um, don't either don't push as far hard as they they should for education because 
they've been like discouraged by the system or because of like class issues where, you know, it's too expensive to get an education there. I think that's one of the major issues that constantly gets brought up. Um, I think, hmm, what is another common issue? I'm trying to make sure that I don't disregard other important things. It's one of those things where there's a lot of different pieces. Just whatever's on the top of your head. Yeah. We're not going to be able to cover everything. No worries. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think the other issue is um, like, and then like the other thing that I've noticed is it really relates to like labor, labor rights and labor issues um, broadly mm. within the Filipino community. Because I think as a, I don't want to like uh, stereotype Filipino people, but I think generally when um, a lot of people move to another country and they work there, they're a bit more subservient and unwilling to uh, like really declare when they're having an issue with their employer. You know, if they're working too many hours oh, or they're yeah. health risk, yeah. um, that's something that people don't really feel comfortable talking about, especially yeah. as an immigrant. Like for me personally, it's something I'm still struggling with, even though I have a work permit and I'm an international, and I come from a more international mm -hmm. student background is I don't like complaining if my work makes me work longer than I have to or if I feel like I'm not getting paid enough because I have the specter and fear of like deportation because if I don't have a job, I'm not going to be able yeah, to yeah, yeah. deal with that. But for other Filipino people, like it's not just the fear of deportation, it's the fear of their not being able to feed man. their yeah. families, yeah. right? So they're yeah. willing to put themselves in, like especially during COVID, like put themselves in environments where they're either forced to be isolated from the broader community for like months on end or work in very dangerous like environments where they can get harmed potentially but because you know they don't want to they some people don't know that they can go to the police and say this is a violation of rights and this is like you know like there are certain labor standards that we hold that they that they should hold um a lot like one of the things you see commonly is if someone complains in private to another filipino person about um, employer violations they'll end up saying well you know you should just be grateful to be here in canada so don't even like worry about it you just have to power through this difficult time period for a couple of years and yeah, it'll be okay yeah. rather than Dude, saying this is bullshit. not okay yeah. yeah for sure such bullshit um i actually have my own experience well it's not my own experience but um my roommate is a former german navy uh, veteran and um we we once got to talking about like because obviously he as a sailor knows that like one of the biggest professions that Filipinos are in is the maritime industry, right? Um, as, uh, well, there's no other way to say that as um, sailors on commercial ships, right? Yeah. Um, and basically he would make fun of the fact that a lot of the times that like the, the Filipinos would go through like this formal training and the Philippines going through, you know, like actual like university courses and stuff and then just work as deckhands on um these ships because he's because he basically claimed that they were underqualified and lazy because he also had the experience of working on a, a commercial ship during some kind of training um, i guess and he always complained that the filipinos whenever their shift would end even if they still had work to do they would just like end their shift right there and i said you might not realize it but like they're probably doing that now because if they don't do that like they probably have the experience of being overworked for like 16 hours straight prior to that for so sure. yeah. when their shift is over they're they're out of there they're not going to finish their, the paperwork because they're like no if i start doing this and they're going to get used to that again and then i have to do not eight hour shifts not 12 hour shifts but i'm doing but i'm pushing 16 hour shifts again yeah. um and to be fair like in my opinion that's a huge problem you know how is it that young filipinos go through a university degree and 
I've actually looked because like this is an issue that really bothered me. I've looked into the, like the training that they do go through to become um, seamen or like seagoing people, right? Um, and it's pretty extensive. And honestly, I think compared it to the training that that the same profession gets here in Germany, and the Filipinos have a lot more hands-on experience once they graduate from that course. But for some reason, they're not put into the position of being the third officer or something like that on a ship. They end up yeah. being deckhands. Yeah, we all like as an education system, like the Philippines is like built so that people who are born and raised there and study there are able to use their skills to work abroad. You know, like nursing yeah. is an example yeah. where the accreditation <laughs> and the like the whole system of nursing in the Philippines is built so that if you wanted to work in the UK, it's so like through the NHS, like you have the right kinds of qualifications and structure, you know, background to do it. Yeah. But when you actually leave the country and, you know, say that, hey, yeah, I got this degree in the Philippines. A lot of people are like, well, I don't know what that means. So I don't think you have any skills at all. And you yeah, must exactly. have to work your way up. You know, I talked to a lot of nurses here in Canada where they move as a caregiver or they move as like, um, like a licensed practical nurse, which is like a different kind of nursing system here. Um, they're, they're told constantly, you know, you didn't, you know, your degree is nice, but you need to do a full four-year degree, or you need to do something here in the country, a country here, if you want to actually have a job there, despite say, you know, I know so someone who, yeah. like worked as an ICU nurse in the Philippines so for 10 ridiculous. years, but they can't work there, and, yeah. but they're totally qualified to work in like the UK, or they're able to work in the Emirates, yeah. and so what does, or like this person in particular, like they worked as a, a emergency um, they worked in the emergency unit in Taiwan and Hong Kong, but they can't work there in Canada. Um, part of me asks, like, well, what is so special about Canada's healthcare system? Dude, that they can't I ask myself this about yeah. like every single system here here in Germany. Like, for example, my high school diploma, if I, like even even my IB diploma, isn't directly recognized here. And what I thought to myself, so I had to go through a whole year course of like basically receiving like the qualification. Um, to, to, to go to university here and during that entire time my impression was that like a the course that I'm going through is significantly easier than for example all the material that we were handling in junior year at Brent right so not to say that um, the education that they get at Brent is to be compared to like the education that a normal Filipino gets no right but what just really drove me up the wall is that like I was in the retard math class right and the math that we did was harder than like some of the math that I had to do to go to university here. And then I speak to people at the university and, and they were like, yeah, the last three years in high school, I didn't even have math. And I'm like, what are you talking about? How can you not have math in the last three years of, of your high school and yet you're qualified to go to university here without any questions asked and I'm not, that's bullshit. Yeah, it's such, it's, you know, it's a huge slap in the face. When, yeah. you know, like I try to describe these things, especially here in Canada, it just kind of feels like, you know, um, not necessarily that I'm underestimated, but like the people, like the people's expectations of me, because you know where I come from is a bit lower. It's a bit frustrating, and yeah, um, yeah, yeah, it drives like, me I up just, the wall, dude. I don't understand. Like I, I get that sometimes in journalism. Like I got that like one of my first years as a university student, maybe it was my second year, where I was editing an article, and I was talking to someone, and they complimented me on how good my English is, and I told them, well, I hope it's good because i'm editing your article <laughs> but i appreciate the compliment now usually i just tell people now if my if they tell me my english is good for example like for that one is that i think their english is great too regardless of where they come from because um it's one of those things where you're just kind of it's just kind of constantly 
comes up, you know, it's an issue that's quite common. Um, and same yeah. thing for over-education. Over uh, and I also think about it constantly because, you know, if you, if, in my opinion, I don't know how I actually would do, but if you put me in a university setting in the Philippines or a high school setting in the Philippines, I wouldn't thrive in the same way that I did in Brent or in uh, Miguel yeah, where yeah. I went, you know, mm -hmm. like it doesn't, and then not to say that one is easier or harder, but, you know, like they're real skills that you're being, you're developing in these areas and um, they don't necessarily translate one-to-one, -one, you know, and so like, I'm sure like going to the Philippines for, for my university experience, if I had gone there, I'd be, I'd have such a harder time, like integrating myself into it and really understanding like the format of learning. So um, it's really hard to say one to one, like what is like what so, whether something is better or not. But we will automatically make these assumptions about Filipino immigrants, like For constantly, sure. yeah. and we just say, oh yeah. yeah, because they went here, they must be not as qualified or not as intelligent, which is a lot of crap in my opinion. It's such bullshit. Yeah, I mean, I think the most extreme case that I ever heard of um, was a young Filipino who I met here in here in Germany who was actually redoing an engineering degree. Think about this for a second. So. This guy had studied mechanical engineering in the Philippines and was basically redoing parts of his degree here so that he could work as an engineer here. And so we got into talking and he said to me, like, what I don't understand is that in the Philippines during my degree, we didn't just learn how to design machines. We learned how to build them. So the guy was actually a pretty good machinist and could like work machining equipment and design machines. Whereas a German engineer here, you give him like a lathe and he has no fucking idea what to do with the thing and so i'm just kind of like how is this guy more qualified than the other guy who actually knows how to build the thing right yeah so it's just it's just so much stuff like that and obviously the case with the healthcare workers it's just it, it's infuriating because from what i've heard the the university qualification that you get in the philippines is actually pretty damn good if you study nursing yeah. like you actually know about like you know your shit right and then especially in English speaking countries, when they don't recognize that, that, yeah, yeah. just. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things where, yeah, it's hard to understand everyone's qualifications from all over the world. But yeah, for you sure. Know, really put that and compare them. But I think um, there's a lot of laziness that ends up happening to, you know, where people decide, oh, because they're from there, they must not be as qualified, where they could probably do more in-depth research to really understand what kind of courses they took, you know, at least get an understanding of what their background and experiences are. And I think it's really harmful for the outcomes that we get for our the qualified people that work in important industries, you know, like engineering and nursing are not like um, in fields that have no impact on people. They literally have like major impact on the kind of quality of services you know like infrastructure that we have so you want the most qualified people who understand a lot of different things are For regardless sure. of where they where they come from you know their language proficiency and everything else you know like those are very important like skills to have and we don't adequately assess people's skills you know yeah, yeah. in fairness that the argument that it's difficult to compare like international qualifications is one that doesn't like it's not valid for me because at least in my country there is a dedicated ministry here which has one job and that is to check and compare the qualifications of foreigners or foreign qualifications in this country so it's they're they're literally being paid by the taxpayer to find out what what the foreign qualification is so that that's no excuse for me if someone comes here and they're like well we don't know what like what your degree qualifies you to do my honest response like knowing that now would be well find out you know like, exactly <laughs> yeah it really yeah. Should, it really shouldn't be something that's difficult obviously i understand there are like you know certain limitations 
of trying to figure out those things with like language or whatever but like that's your like if it's your job you it's know? your job you, can, yeah. you have the, a certain amount of like you know like funds like you can hire translators or you can you know get exactly someone else who can, exactly who the taxpayer pays you to do it so do it yeah exactly yeah, it's sure. and um to just touch back on the engineering thing i think <laughs> being a car guy there is this there are certain differences that you see working on for example a japanese and on and on a german car the german car is always over engineered to the point where you're like well if it works and it works brilliantly it's just when it starts to go wrong then it starts to really go wrong and then taking apart a piece of german equipment is it's it's like you're doing open heart surgery on something <laughs> versus like working on a just for my comparison on a japanese car is almost like you feel like the engineers designed it in a way that they had some background in actually working on the thing mm-hmm. instead of just designing it mm-hmm. yeah i just watched the first two seasons of drive to survive so i'm slowly understanding what you're talking about here i used to have the yeah. understanding of it so i appreciate it <laughs> yeah yeah for sure so up until this point in your journey on you know having journalism as your craft as your career what are some of the things that you absolutely love about it and other things that you absolutely kind of maybe not hate but just are kind of turned off by because when we were going to school I did think about being a journalist as well which is why yeah. I started writing for our school magazine which we both agreed was a bit <laughs> too censored or maybe uh, it probably there's pros and cons, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think high school newspapers have a certain limitation of what they're able to really report on, you know, as as a as much as a high, any high school paper can. Um, to answer your question, I think one of the things I love the most about doing journalism, you know, as a like a vocation, I guess, is um really get to get to you really have the opportunity to get to know people and their issues, you know. I find that and it's something I take try to take out with take away from me like in my day-to-day is um people really um, do have their own stories that they really want to share. And if you're, if you're willing to ask them questions, I guess it's also what you do in this podcast format is um, you get to really ask a person a question and really understand their thoughts. And you'd be surprised with, you know, like the kind of depth and depth and um, nuance that they come in with, you know, you really get to understand where they're coming from and why they come from that environment, like why they come from, why they came to that opinion based on, you know, their perspective and, it's something that leads to a lot more self-reflection on my end where I really have to think about my place you know in society and think about what am I like actively doing you know if I if I hear about a Filipino person you know who moved to Canada and their story is widely different from mine I start thinking about you know um, how much I've taken for granted all the different Mm -hmm. advantages that I've given because of my background and you know how much they've had to work and it's made me realize, you know, like, I like, I'd like to think that I'm a hard worker, but when put again, up against someone, you know, who has to take care of, you know, their entire family who moved to a different country where they didn't speak the language and they're trying mm-hmm. to make ends meet in a job that's way more demanding than any job that I have, it kind of puts into perspective what it means to work hard, you know? So look, these are kinds of the things that go into my head as I like talk to people and I really get to, you know, get to know different kinds of issues in journalism. So I think that's a huge positive. It makes me really more um, understanding and a bit more sympathetic um, and more empathetic to other people's um, issues, you know? So I'm more patient in understanding, like I'm more patient with other people on a general basis because I realize you really don't know um, what's going on in their mind and what they're having to face. Um, so I think that's a great benefit. The thing that 
I dislike or something that I've struggled with with journalism is um, because of the demands of the industry. Um, some issues, I think, um, have a lot of nuance and a lot of depth that um, doesn't, can't really be encapsulated in 800 mm-hmm. words or less or a thousand words or less. But because, you know, people don't want to read like a 3000 word essay on the issues and, you know, global, the global nursing um, system, like you can't write about 3000 words. So you end up cutting a lot of different things that could be of use or would be incredibly important in your opinion, but maybe you or an editor decide like, this is the thing that people will latch onto. So this is the thing we're going to focus on. And I think, and I want to be that kind of person when I, when I report on stories where people have all the information laid out in front of them and they can make a decision on this issue for themselves. And sometimes I feel like journalism is not the avenue to really accomplish that. And that's why also I still like, I dabble a little bit in like academia. Like I just finished my master's in sociology and I'm trying to decide if I want to do that. Thank you. Thank you. And I think um, academia allows you to do that where you get to go really in depth on an issue and talk about it at great lengths. But how many people are reading academic papers, especially if they're hidden behind a paywall where you have to pay like $80 just to read one article. Um, it's, yeah. there's a, there's a issue of like depth and reach that between the two, um, that like, I don't know how to reconcile at this point. So this is something that I'm trying to figure out, like, how do I satisfy that feeling of like, I'm getting enough information out there so people can decide for themselves, but then I'm still actually reaching people who are going to be able to read those stories or want to be able to read those stories. Start a YouTube channel, dude, please. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's just something I have to think about now. I'm going to chew on that after this conversation, just be like, well, how the hell am I supposed to do this? Yeah, it'll work out. Um, when it when things like I'm gonna piggyback off something that you wrote actually, I think it was for the McGill International Review. Sure. Um, it was about um, President Duterte, president of the Philippines. Um, mm-hmm. I don't. I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, going pretty much going after or threatening to shut down Rappler and mm-hmm. uh, the chief of it being on trial because the Rappler had been very much very critical of the current president ever since he took office. And so when stuff like that happens, like what goes through your head as someone who is in that industry? Yeah, I mean, I'll say like, because I'm a bit distant, because I'm, you know, here in Canada and on the Philippines, um, most of my feelings are just general, like more broad, you know, as a Filipino citizen, rather than like, as Alec, the want to want to be journalist. Um, my perspective is mostly that it's um, it's frustrating to see that we have like um, we have a a system in the Philippines. We have a community that like you know um, is actively targeted because you know we they're trying to we're trying to put out basic information you know as journalists and it seems that the who gets targeted and who gets like you know gets negatively impacted by um, the government. Um, is based on partisan lines, you know, like where we stand on certain issues, get, mm-hmm. gets to decide whether or not um, some journalists get to continue doing their work or not, which I think is incredibly dangerous because I think um, journalism as a industry needs to be kind of independent from those, uh, from independent from all the noise that comes from politics because they're supposed to be like a place that people can trust so that they can, you know, understand what's going on around them. So it's kind of terrifying to me to see that because I feel like we've 
the Philippines as a whole has already gone through something like that, where, you know, certain press institutions get shuttered in favor of ones that, you know, or have a certain lean or bent that support, you know, what the administration that props them up wants. Mm. And I think we've seen like the consequence of that is quite harmful to our democracy and it's harmful to the society as a whole. But yeah, like, I think that's frustrating. And it, it's something that like, I think, as Filipino people, like we have to like push back on. And it's not just in journalism, you know, a journalism is like a very like obvious target, but there's a lot of people who work in certain industries or certain kinds of people who, you know, do certain kinds of things or believe in certain kinds of um, things or that get blocked out of broader society for no reason other than, you know, like we disagree with them, which I think is not how we build a productive, healthy society um, as a whole. So yeah, that's my opinion. And I hope, you know, like with Ressa and Rappler and ABSCB and other other publications that, you know, like I think it's fine to disagree and, you know, want to challenge like, you know, stories and perspectives with, you know, other fact-based opinions or stories of your own, but we don't get that kind of conversation in the Philippines. Instead, we get a conversation of like, here are the facts of an issue. And we're like, no, that's a lie. Um, I don't like you. Your per the person that you are is disagreeable or, you know, your opinion is bullshit but i'm not going to back it up i'm going or I, if i back it up i'm going to send you like a tiktok or a facebook post that's complete lies but you know it it it, it, it like it confirms my perspective you know is it's unhealthy it's not the way we're supposed to be doing yeah. yeah yeah i hate it when that happens especially when it become when it can sense information and facts is when people start arguing the position rather than like the actual facts about it like another yeah. sort of situation like I guess I can compare this to is when Twitter was taking down Trump's tweets during the elections. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not a big, I'm not, I'm not a fan of Trump, but at the same time, it's like your, your social media outlet, your job, your only job is to allow people to post these things. The minute you take a stance and do something like taking down Trump's tweets, now you're getting involved. Mm. Yeah. I think like, I, I watched Joe Rogan's episode where he actually had the um, the CEO of Twitter on the show. And it was um, basically the whole episode was basically asking her why Twitter takes down certain posts, right? And the answer is that they have community guidelines which do not allow for hate speech, right? And then I think Joe and his guests, they brought up like a couple of examples, of just like just like really normal phrases or like just like stuff that like no one considers to be like controversial and these profiles got banned and posts taken down because of that under these hate speech community guidelines my opinion on that is that it, 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 social media has like you said one job and that's to allow people to sort of share their thoughts right with basically whoever follows them right um and that. I understand that my my opinion means that like people get to say nasty things online but the truth about reading that stuff online is that there's a saying i suppose here in germany is that like a ship doesn't sink because it's in because it floats in water or it's or, or, or because it lives in water it sinks when it lets the water in right and so in my opinion the internet especially should just be a place where even if even if you're going to say something nasty you can say it right? You can post that. You can put it out there. Should it be tolerated by people? No, but you shouldn't be taking stuff down. You should like the internet should be the ultimate realm of like freedom of, of, of expression, basically, in my yeah. opinion. 
And so absolutely, yeah. that that does mean that like some people are going to say some pretty dumb shit, right? But that's kind of, like you you can't have both. You can't have absolute freedom of, of expression and a completely safe space. Yeah, I I think and I think the issue is, and I'm not an expert on this, obviously, is um like we entrust. I don't know if you entrust, but we do it. We we put some faith in social media platforms to figure out these kinds of large, broader questions of like free speech and um, control speech in their platforms, where I don't think they're really prepared to really answer those questions for themselves, you know, like they either answer it with complete, like, you know, disregard for common sense, you know, and take down Mm. things that aren't supposed to be taken down, or they do complete disregard of, you know, like common decency where everything is fair game, even if it's like spam or bots or, you know, very obvious forms of hate speech, and then they just leave it up on their platform. Um, I don't think they have either they don't have the personnel or they don't really have an understanding of you know these issues to really be doing the police work of figuring that out who does I don't know the answer to I mean yeah like it's a it's one of those things where it's um it's probably like a broader conversation we have to figure out together but I know that for sure (laughs) that you know social media giants like don't know how to do it on their own or if if they're doing it on their own right now they're doing it quite poorly yeah extremely poorly I hate to sort of like bite the hand that we are uploading our stuff to, but like, <laughs> honestly, in my opinion, YouTube does a pretty piss poor job of like actually, like, of actually policing what gets out there. Because I've seen a bunch of people, whether it's politics or the or just videos in response to like some of the government reactions to COVID, I've seen normal people have their stuff be taken down and blocked and accounts deleted, even though YouTube will demand that 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 this happens. But I've seen it myself where videos all of a sudden midstream, like when I'm watching it, will just go away. And I've seen videos like like that disappear. But on the other hand, there just there's just some mindless, senseless crap on the platform where you think to yourself, like, this has nothing to do with like common sense anymore. And this person is allowed to like broadcast their views. But someone else was being very critical but, and actually bringing arguments for their for their critical thinking is taken down yeah and so i think that's a massive problem like as much as i always say if you want to say something make a youtube channel buy a camera upload right yeah. but it is an issue it really is and honestly like especially on, on this show it is the unfiltered show and we try to not like like filter what we do say or censor what we do say but there have been occasions where i've been like Maybe I need to reword what I'm about to say because if if a viewer doesn't like report this, YouTube will probably just take it down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and really, yeah, and it really shouldn't be something like that. I think um, I I have way more examples in my head of like social media platforms like banning the wrong person or not banning the right the right, right person, person like mm-hmm. on a yeah. constant basis than you know them having good practices that lead to like healthy discussion on their platforms. I don't think that's something that has really been accomplished anywhere because I think yeah, there's a reason exactly. why the certain platforms have reputations of one thing or another because they all kind of do their work poorly in that regard. I don't mean to, you know, just actively criticize basically everything <laughs> that I use on a day-to-day basis, but I think they definitely can be done better. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And from your perspective, again, coming from a journalism kind of thing, in today's sort of but her, I, well, yeah, I, I'm going to say but her culture where everyone's overly sensitive, that everyone chooses to, you know, be offended by anything that they can try to find. How does that affect you, if at all, as someone who writes about, you know, 
social political issues. Um, yeah, yours is very concentrated between um, Philippine culture and relationships and inner workings of society. But regardless of that, how does that, you know, how do you feel about that? Yeah, um, I guess my thing when I try to tackle any issue, whether that's Philippines or, you know, broader, or if it's like, you know, current social, political, cultural issues that go on here in Canada and the United States, um, is I try not to take too much of a hard stand until I've like read as much as possible on a topic, you know, which means that I don't get to be as reactive as everyone else. That's why my Twitter feed is usually just full of um, memes or me commenting on basketball because those are the only things I'm allowed to, I, I allow myself to be like quickly reactive towards. But it does give me this certain level of like when I do get in depth on the issue, when I do talk about issue or think about issue, like I have more confidence that like what I'm saying or what I'm thinking has more validity, you know, because it is really easy, I think, um, like, because I'm on Twitter a lot, where you see someone, like, uh, you see a certain trend or tweet, and, you know, someone is either, like, maybe someone is canceled, or someone says something offensive, and it's really easy just to ride on that train, and decide, oh, well, that person must be a terrible person, and that's the end of it, when maybe, you know, what should be done is to take a couple minutes to see well where does this quote come from and what are they trying to say or what is the context of the situation and make a decision for yourself you know um it's frustrating because i i see a lot of people just take that you know and they do it without this nuance i guess because they want to um part of it is like you want to display to the world that you're a certain kind of person you know um whether it's like you're a contrarian or someone who is deeply you know like um deeply ingrained with current issues even though you don't have like the capacity to handle all, all the information that's being thrown at you like you want to be there in the conversation and I think maybe we shouldn't be like maybe it's way yeah. too yeah. Uh, maybe we try way too hard to do that and we really need to take a step back because even you know like for like for a lot of these issues like I think um instead of like demonizing or like praising people one way or another like we gotta really understand like the full um, gravity of like where everything is coming from and like make a more level conclusion because I think even if you disagree with someone you're able to really um, respect them in a certain way if you can understand you know like why they come to that conclusion or even if you just like even if you disagree at least you know where they're coming from and you can have an actual conversation on things that actually matter rather than say oh this person is all good or all evil and you know like if you're on their side then you must be on the side like the wrong side or something like that yeah um, like sometimes they are very black and white and very obvious but i will say like for a lot of the things like it would be useful for a lot of people if they actually you know uh, take a step back and thought about it first and it's just not something that you see happen often and in journalism i think we there are some publications that are more reactive like that and you know, it's sometimes it's hard to set the record straight. Like if you tell a story a certain way and it turns out the reality is completely the opposite of what that is, like readers will come at you and will target you pretty heavily. So you have to be pretty confident in what you're saying. And I don't do that kind of reporting. So I don't know what that's like to have to like, you know, try to build a narrative of an issue um, in real time. But like, there's a certain amount of responsibility that, you know, as journalists and as people, we have to be like, I'm careful about when we talk about these issues and I know I don't want to be so so negative but I do think like we're not we're not clearing the bar there yeah Yeah. I like I honestly think that this whole cancel culture thing is like a symptom of a system which has 
like basically made it okay to <laughs> i can't even begin to to describe this it like it's the symptom of a system that, that that's made it okay to be uninformed about something but to believe that you are super informed about it and thus can actually form a complete opinion on something mm -hmm. yeah. and that just drives me up the wall like this whole cancel culture bullshit i'm honestly happy that like especially like in stand-up comedy that they're sort of taking that back and essentially turning it around and, and like calling out the bullshit because i think that's super important i think i think it's important that people start actually you know this, this isn't to say that i don't care about social issues because i do but i think there is a point where you can take it too far i really do i think i think they lose like certain movements lose a certain level of um like momentum when they're mm. co-opted and used in a certain way that you know either feeds into like someone's own personal agenda or you know um just has like a certain lack of um, understanding of a current situation you know so like I don't completely agree like with your assessment on cancel culture like I think it has certain utility but I will say that there are definitely instances where you know someone like does something or something is taken out of context and we end up having this kind of um like discussion of a person that is disingenuous and we don't actually get to talk about sure. what really matters you know and I think that mm -hmm. is really harmful as a like as like if we want people to really you know take on a particular side we need to also give people the opportunity to speak back and have a real conversation um we need to give people the opportunity to really gather as much information as they can before they make like a decision rather than like like pressuring people to make a decision where they don't have enough understanding of the situation i think that happens quite often nowadays yeah. and i think like that's not going to be really helpful but again it comes with the issue of like some people just don't have like the time or the willingness to get as nuanced an issue some people just want to put something out there and say yeah i'm for or against an issue and not really think about what that means you know so yeah it's true it's tough. <laughs> it's tough. I like, yeah, I feel like there is that sort of sense that people have nowadays where it's like, oh, I, I feel like I need to be a part of something or I need to do something. And sometimes I just kind of think, oh, maybe it's best if you just don't do anything. Yeah, I think there's like a performative aspect of a lot of like social media nowadays, you know, where, mm -hmm. you know, I need to be in solidarity with a certain issue. So let me post one infographic on instagram and that's my whole um, political opinion i won't yeah. donate i won't go to protest or i won't talk about this issue and try to get people more engaged with it but i will share it on instagram and that will be my whole thing so i've done all the work i need to do so i'm pat myself i on did the my part yeah, yeah exactly you know not to criticize anyone for example who put like black squares or anything you know but like you put a black square on instagram that doesn't really make you an activist like you got to do more than that if you actually think this is a salient issue that we should be talking about you know it's like there has to be there has to be more on the ground that actually happens rather than that you know i think social media is a great place where people get to put themselves up and like posture themselves so that they feel good about themselves without actually having to do any of the heavy lifting that comes with like dealing with these major issues oh yeah yeah for sure i think also well one of my theories is, is that with anything society in general has just advanced too fast uh, whether it's social media whether it's technology whether it's you know working culture and the foundation that we built our society on it didn't allow it didn't give enough time for us to cope with it 
So now we just don't know how to, we forgot how to interact with each other. For sure. Yeah, I think, um, like, I think this is, this is a process, you know, we're all kind of learning yeah, yeah. how to figure these things out. And I think it's, you know, totally realistic that we're going to, we're going to make some mistakes and we're going to adjust for it. I think the, the main thing though, is like, you have to be open-minded of the fact that, you know, we're not all hundred percent, like, no, we don't all hundred percent know what's going on and we got to be able to like reflect and work back and, you know, figure out what we're going to do with it. Like these social media platforms, I think are such a, um, like there's such, there, there, we have a lot of positives for sure, but we don't think, like, I don't think we, um, work through like you know the long-term consequences of these things enough and you know like I, I think for me I make personal decisions about how much I engage with social media nowadays because it's so easy to like kind of get wrapped into it and you know spend way too much time on there and it affects a lot of my mental health like trying to get through so awesome <laughs> yeah All right I think uh, this is a good place to end it. Alec, thank yep. you very much for coming on and being open about not only your journey being a journalist, but you know, have, being open about your takes about different issues in this in the world as well. For sure. I mean, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to speak with me. You know, it's hard. I, I will reflect back for the next few days and think about, well, did I actually say what I want to say? And I don't know if I have, but I do appreciate it. It was very eye-opening. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. Please, yeah, no, please keep doing what you're doing, even if you are, you know, questioning yourself at times. You know, I think as a journalist and during these times, modern times where people are very social media heavy, um, we need more people who want to write about facts and the truth. Uh, yeah, e- even yeah. if it's about issues that not many people may, may not be even aware of or interested in because it's still a story that needs to be told. For sure, for sure. Um, I really start a YouTube channel, man. (laughs) We'll see, we'll see. I I appreciate the encouragement, though. Sometimes a little push is all that I really need. So Mm. thanks, thanks very much. And I really do. uh, This conversation was interesting for me too. So I really appreciate talking to you guys. All right, awesome. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.